It's a joy to be with you again. Let me say that Mark wasn't wrong. Orland Park does pray for you on a regular basis. And so, you should send stuff over there to them. I will be with them next Sunday uh, in the evening service, and they regularly pray for all of you. So, do, if you are able, uh, do respond to the email, send stuff over there. They are excited about what is happening here, as am I. Um, I'm very excited to hear about the potential new pastor for this congregation. I've been praying for you all regularly, and it is a joy to know that perhaps in God's kind providence, soon you will have a pastor. I will probably not see you again for a while. Um, it's not because your elders don't like me. Uh, it's yet to be seen. Um, it is because, as of this week, uh, I have found out that I am the new Spanish-speaking chaplain for the Chicago Cubs. So, <laughs> yeah, pray for that. Um, it's bittersweet because it takes me away from opportunities like this, but um, gives me an opportunity to minister to a unique group of human beings. So, pray for that. This morning we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Ecclesiastes, if you uh, are unfamiliar, is that weird book over there by the Psalms, uh, if you go past there to the book of Proverbs, then you hit Ecclesiastes, and that's the book you kind of skip over because um, it says strange things right between that and Song of Solomon, which, of course, we never preach in church. But when I get invited to come to a summer series here, that's what I'm going to do. I wonder if you think about death very much. I know that the pandemic has caused people to think about death in uh, a whole new way. I've been thinking about death a lot lately. Just yesterday, I picked up the ashes of one of my students who died just a few weeks ago, 32 years old, died in his sleep. So I've been thinking about death a lot. If there's one thing that I'm sure of, it's this. I'm not sure of much, but I'm sure of this. Every single one of you is going to die. Somebody in here will be the first one to die, and someone in here will be the last one to die. And what's really weird about it is it's probably going to come as a surprise to all of us, both of those things. The question is, what do we do with death? How should we view it, and how should we live until it arrives? I don't know you very well, you don't know me very well, but whether you are a Christian or not, whether you are young or old, those are questions we all ask or try to avoid asking. And they're good questions. These are the kinds of questions we should be asking, and these are the kinds of questions that Ecclesiastes 7 helps us answer. 
I don't assume that all of you are very familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, so let me very briefly kind of situate you in the book of Ecclesiastes. The writer of the book, or the main protagonist of the book, is the guy who's conveniently called the preacher. And he goes out of his way to demonstrate that life is, Bible kind of translates it sometimes vanity, which doesn't mean useless, it just means mysterious. It's enigmatic, it is both bitter and sweet at the same time. And the writer has gone out of his way to show us that really everything in life fits into that category of just mysterious. All of life swings between two poles. On the one hand, everything is pretty much miserable and seemingly useless. But on the other hand, life is amazing and full of great joy. And again, all of life swings between these two pendulums. It never quite gets to either of the poles. Isn't that the way your life has gone this week? As some of our lives have swung more violently this week, some of them less. But it's all of our experience, and the preacher desires for you and I to live wisely in this very weird world that we exist in. What it means to live wisely really comes down to two things. Knowing two things. Number one, God knows what he's doing. Number two, God is in control. Now he also says, at the same time, since God knows what he's doing, but you don't necessarily know what he's doing, and God is in control, you're not in control. How should we respond to these things? Well, preacher would tell us this. We should respond by recognizing that God is God, and thus we should do the best we can to enjoy the good, to bear with the bad, and to know that there are rarely any easy answers to life. And those things are on full display here in perhaps the weirdest section of one of the weirdest books in the entire Bible. I'm going to read it for us, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 13. This is what God's Word says. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. This is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the house of the fool is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to go to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in the spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. 
And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? I want to title the sermon this morning, as many of you know and have some of you have commented on, If We Were Vampires. Now, almost everybody in here is probably wondering, what on earth is the preacher thinking? Well, the, the title comes from uh, perhaps my favorite song, from perhaps my favorite singer-songwriter, working today, a a man named Jason Isbell, who is not a Christian. But as we consider this section, I think it would be beneficial to hear just the beginning of his song. It goes something like this. This is the second verse. It's really the key to the whole thing. It says, if we were vampires and death was a joke, then we'd Go out on the sidewalk and smoke and laugh at all the lovers and their plans. I wouldn't feel the need to hold your hand. Maybe time running out is a gift. I'll work hard to the end of my shift and give you every second I can find and hope it isn't me who's left behind. Chorus says this, it's knowing that this can't go on forever. Likely, one of us will have to spend some days alone. Maybe we'll get 40 years together. But one day I'll be gone. One day you'll be gone. I want to talk about two things that come from this passage today. First, I want to talk about the gift of death. I think Isabel got it right. I think that as painful and as tragic as death is, there is some sense in which death is a gift. The second thing I want to consider this morning is what you and I should do until we die. I'll give it away from the very beginning. Here's the one thing I want to persuade you of. It's that you and I should live towards death the best we can, knowing that God is in control. (laughs) You might think, I already knew that before I got here. Eh, probably. But I wonder how well we're doing with it. It's weird that the most obvious truths in life are sometimes the hardest to actually live in light of, but I want us to leave here more convinced as God's people that we should live towards death the best we can, knowing that He is in control. So let's begin talking about the gift of death. I think this is what the author is getting at in verses 1 through 6 in this passage. Again, Jason Isbell might have been reading this passage when he wrote the song. What Isbell highlights so wonderfully is that knowing we are going to die, knowing that it is coming, enlivens the lives that we live. If death did not await us, there would be far less meaning to the events and to the people in our lives. It would just keep on going. This is precisely the point of the preacher. All of this section probably looks a little bit different in your Bible from the text that comes before it and the text that comes after it. These are all proverbs or proverbial. 
a proverb being this short, powerful statement written to grab our attention and cause us to contemplate life. He begins with something that you and I should be fully on board with. Right there, verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. Having a good reputation is better than having stuff. Real simple, everybody goes, well, I don't really actually live that way, but I know I'm supposed to believe that. Moving on. Good start. It's the next part, the back half of verse 1 that kind of gets us thinking, hold on a second, what is going on here? The day of death than the day of birth. Could this possibly be true? Is the preacher just being ironic or sarcastic? I don't think so. The key to this entire passage is a word that comes up over and over and over again. Maybe you heard it when I read it. It's the word better. That is to say, riches aren't inherently bad, but a good reputation is just better. The day of somebody's birth isn't bad. The day of death is just better. Throughout this section, the preacher is forcing us to face the realities of living in a fallen world in which there are not always right or wrong ways to live. Sometimes things are just better. A life, the life that we live, friends, is much more based on wisdom than it is on law. You and I try to make it law every day, don't we? Yeah, 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 cool, preacher, but what should I do? You're like, pray about it. Like, that is not helpful. I want you to give me a checklist so I have three things to take away so I can check them off and feel as if I'm a good Christian and then blow off thinking about what it means to follow Jesus. That would be much more helpful to me. Could you please give me the list? I'm not going to give you the list. You're a mean preacher. I just want the list. You know who also wasn't really into giving lists? Jesus. It's one of the most interesting things. Go and read the Gospels this week. It's a good practice. And just watch how many times Jesus gives a direct answer to a question. I'll go ahead and give it away. Almost never. Hey, could you do this for me? Jesus goes, there was a farmer one time. When is this going to happen? Asks the question, who are you? Jesus very rarely gives questions or answers to questions because he's causing us to consider what it means for him to be who he is. He's just, as the wisdom of God, as the New Testament puts it, causing us to understand that life is hard and that seeking the better path is what we ought to do when there is no clear option. This makes some of us very uncomfortable. But it's simply the way life goes. Often, life comes down to just doing the best we can. In this case, understanding that the death day is better than the birthday. Why? Because of the ability the day of death has to make us reflect on our lives. Here's, here's the craziest thing that happened yesterday. I didn't just pick up the ashes of one of my students. I also got a call on the way that another one of my students, his wife, gave birth. It was one of the strangest days of my entire life. When I heard of the 
baby being born. It was exciting. Congratulations. Way to go. How many toes? How many fingers? Great. Can't wait to hold that thing. That little tiny alien. Isn't that the way like newborn babies look? The points for free. But you're just like, oh, this is cool. Congratulations. There's something dramatically different when you're holding a box. It's surprisingly heavy. It's only this big. Full of what remains of a person you were training to preach three weeks ago. I was excited for the couple, but I sure thought about what I was doing with my life when I held something that was just like me a few weeks ago, and what I will be in not too long from now. See, friends, the day of death is better than the day of birth. It's one reason why I enjoy funerals more than weddings. Weddings are complicated. So are funerals, but at funerals, we're forced to take stock of our lives. And that's the point of what the preacher says in verses 2 and 3. Notice, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. I am caused to consider the life that I live and all of the blessings that I have when you're staring at a body that used to be a person. Friends, do not forget where you are headed. There's a problem here, though, if you're familiar with Ecclesiastes at all. At least there seems to be a problem. Because a passage like this seems to be in direct contradiction to other things that the preacher has said. And we'll say again after this. For example, chapter 5, verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. You might be thinking, hold on, preacher, make up your mind. I think the preacher has made up his mind. His mind is fixed on the reality that while we should take pleasure in life, we should never forget the fact and keep on the forefront of our minds the fact that we're going to die. Notice verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. It doesn't mean that you can't go to the party, but where is your heart? And by the way, heart isn't just like this thing that pumps blood through your body and oxygen and all that kind of stuff. What it is for the people during this time is the very core of your being. It is the center of who you are, more focused on what life is or just getting pleasure out of it. That's, that's what the preacher is saying. And the preacher is saying that the wise person has their heart, has the center of their being in the house of mourning. Why? Because you and I are constantly tempted to live as if we're not going to die. 
Our whole entire society is based on convincing you that you're not going to die. The irony is that when we live with the knowledge that we are going to die, then we can enjoy the world rightly. It's great to have things and not need them, isn't it? To appreciate it for what it is and not feel that it has to be everything. I think this is one of the great joys of, for example, being married for a long time. It's always fun to be around young people. I'm around college people all the time. My wife works for a college ministry. We've always had college kids kind of living with us. And they're always weirded out. They're like, don't you get bored being married to the same person for so long? And of course, I'm always like, yes. And I always tell them, like, I don't, I don't pity nor desire the first 10 years of your marriage for anything. Where you wake up every day and you're like, oh no, are they still here? Okay, they're still here. Can I make this person happy? I don't know, but if I don't make them happy, then my life is over. And oh no, are they going to stay? And is everything okay? Forget that mess. Now you're just like, ah, yeah, she's still here. She's still breathing? Yeah, okay, we're good. <laughs> kind of give each other a high five. Still here! go on with your day. Why? Because you can appreciate it without having to have it. It's the same of all of life. When you don't have to have it, then you can just appreciate it for what it is. Listen, if you want the fastest, most expensive car in the world, you're going to hate the Honda Civic that you drive. But if you don't care about it, and you're just like, look, man, I just need to get from point A to point B. And that jalopy that you get it every day is perfectly fine. You can appreciate it for what it is. If we don't catch on to this, then we'll be distracted by uselessness. Notice verse 5 and 6. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For it's a crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. It just disappears. It'll be constantly focused on the wrong thing, things that just kind of evaporate, make noise for a second, and are gone. And it'll never be enough. Friends, there is nothing easy about death, but it can be a great teacher if we let it. Apostle Paul picks up on this. He thought a lot about death being constantly near it. In, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this, but we have this treasure, this treasure being the glorious message of who Jesus is. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing, that surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Dramatic turn of the page. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be manifest in our bodies. We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. 
You see, Paul saw his own suffering as an entailment of the death of Jesus. I mean, Jesus got hung on a cross. Why do I think my life's going to go any better? More than anything, Paul saw that Jesus' resurrection was a great hope in the face of death. And it's the incredible hope of the resurrection of Jesus that should drive us to embrace the point of the preacher all the more. To accept this idea that death, as complicated as it is, can actually be a gift. Why? Well, for the preacher, death is complicated. Way more complicated than it is for us. Because when you die, everything is just over. There's no clear understanding in the Old Testament of exactly what happens when you die and then after death, there's kind of this vague hope that God's going to do something. But you can scratch all you want in the Old Testament and you're not going to find the powerful hope of you and I will stand in our own two feet, resurrection, new heavens, new earth, and be there with Jesus Christ forever. It doesn't exist in the Old Testament. See, you and I have that hope. You and I should hear the preacher and lean in and go, Amen! Yeah! You're right! And we have Jesus, a resurrected and victorious Jesus, so we can live toward death without fear. We can learn death's lessons and live better as a result of it. Friend, is that your hope this morning? If not, then why not? I can think of two potential reasons. First, you consider yourself a Christian, but you just can't be so optimistic this morning. I understand, that's me much of the time. I'd encourage you to spend some time reading 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this week. I'd encourage you to get on the phone or meet in person with somebody else in this church this week and read it together and then pray reading Ecclesiastes 7 and 2 Corinthians 4 and going, okay, what in here do I not believe? And could you pray that I would believe it and fully embrace it and, and live in light of it? So maybe you don't live in the, with the hope of the resurrection because it's just a hard time in your life as a Christian. The other reason could be because you're not a Christian at all. There's a lot to be gained from the preacher here, just as far as practical wisdom goes, but what this preacher says should make you uneasy. Because death comes for us all, and, and what is on the other side? And what hope do you have? The preacher doesn't have an answer, but you and I do. What is on the other side is eternal life in Jesus Christ for all who trust in him. Friends, you and I should live towards death the best we can. But all of this doesn't fix everything, does it? Remember that I said I want to do two things this morning. My second point is much shorter. We should embrace the gift of death, but this text also helps us understand what to do in the meantime. Do you ever struggle with the meantime? 
It, it might be like the next five minutes, or it might be the next five years, but you ever wonder like, well, what do I do like now? It's all the more difficult when the gap between now and something is some, some indeterminate point. For example, between now and when do you find a spouse? Or between now and you get a raise, that indeterminate point in the future. Or, of course, the hardest one, between now and when you die. What do you and I do until we die? Well, in these closing verses, the preacher is going to give us some advice. It comes down to these three things. Number one, be patient. Number two, be present. And number three, be practical. First of all, be patient. Notice verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Friends, living in a broken world is not easy. And the more around it you are, the more you pay attention, the more you will see that it's easy to turn into a terrible person. Given this, you and I should be patient. Given the reality of verse 7, the writer is going to suggest verses 8 and 9. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than a proud spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Be patient. Death, destruction, disease will drive you to madness if you are not patient. Frustrations of living towards death often create great angst in us. But the reality is if we get angry about it and rage against the world around us and rage against the people around us, then we're just, according to verse 9, fools. So we should be patient. Not only patient, though, but we should also be present. That's verse 10. Say not... It's hard when the Bible like, says the very words you say to yourself, if only like to yourself. I wonder if you've ever asked this question. We'll have a show of hands. I mean, I'm going to raise my hand because I've said it before. You don't have to raise your hand because, you know, it's okay. Why were the former days better than these? preacher throughout all of the book of Ecclesiastes is very clear that, that it's easy to be a slave to the past. It could be something very simple. Like this was never true for me, but like maybe you could dunk at some point. Congratulations, you're not better than me. That goes away and you're like, man, I remember when. It could be something much more serious. I remember when my kids wanted to eat dinner with me. I remember when I had a job that was fulfilling. It's easy to live enslaved to the past, but the preacher would tell us to be present. 
Because not only do we have perfect access to the past, but also the past is gone. It will never come back. Ever. And the more you try to bring it into the present, the more frustrated you will be with what is right now. To doubt the goodness of the present or to be convinced of the superiority of the past is ultimately to doubt the wisdom, goodness, and power of God. Here's the question, friends. Will you and I trust God even in the hard times? We should be patient. We should be present. And lastly, we should be practical. We should see the good of wisdom paired with money, but trust neither of them too much. It says right there, 11 and 12, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. You might go, that sounds pretty good. Preacher, though, has demonstrated time and time again throughout this book that money is elusive and wisdom won't help us figure everything out. They're both good, but they're not everything. If you want proof of that, then this word, they go, you might go like, look, verse 12, it says, the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. First of all, if you think money is a protection, just wait for it. Also, this word protection was translated earlier in the book of Ecclesiastes as a shadow. It's not a bad thing, especially on a sunny day, but it goes away. You should be thankful for them while they're around, and you should be practical. Use your wisdom, use whatever resources you have, do the best you can. But realize that neither of them are your salvation. Where does this leave us? Verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Friends, realize this. There is a God, and you are not Him. And while we can use all of our patient, present, practical wisdom in the world, and we should in light of our coming deaths, we cannot fix it all. So we should labor, and we should celebrate the things that we can do in the world. But know this, you're going to die, and everybody's going to forget you, and that's okay. Because God is the one who will fix all things. You and I should strive to rest in Him and give up our ideas of fixing something only He can and something He will. The world is bent. The world will be made right. God is in control. Till that day comes, May we as God's people live toward death the best we can, knowing that He is in control. Let's pray. God, we thank You that even the hardest things of our lives, things like our impending deaths, can be, in Your wisdom, a gift to us. And so we pray that you would help us to live well in the meantime. That you would help us to 
remember our coming deaths. In doing so, we would live well. Loving you and loving our neighbors. Whatever time we have left. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.